Welcome to the Three Tomatoes Happy Hour, and we do love happy hour and the clinking of glasses and cheers to all you fabulous women who are fully living your lives at every age and every stage. And here's the best news, every hour is happy hour. So whether you clink cheers with your coffee mug or your afternoon cappuccino, remember as the song says, it's five o'clock somewhere. Join us for some grown-up fun, interesting and stimulating conversations that will motivate, inspire, or just make you laugh. And for more grown-up fun, visit our website, The Three Tomatoes, and the three is spelled out, and sign up for our newsletters. Now sit back and relax and enjoy the episode. Greetings, tomatoes. I'm Cheryl Benjamin, the host of this week's podcast. And as the pandemic continues and fears heighten as more cases and deaths are reported, our guest today says the real pandemic is not COVID, but it's mental health and drug addiction. And I'm really delighted to welcome Dr. Russell Suraski here. He's one of the top addiction specialists in the country. He's a triple board certified neurologist, a certified addiction specialist, and he is the only physician in the country with these credentials. He's the medical director of an outpatient treatment program called Back to Life and has his own private practice called Recovery Revolution in Great Neck, New York. So welcome, Dr. Suratsky. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, well, we're delighted to have you here today and really talk about the toll that this pandemic has really taken on mental health and, and addiction. So you know, we all, we're all listening to the media. It's, it's a constant barrage of reporting COVID's toll in terms of numbers of people with COVID, COVID-related deaths. But you say that there's a much bigger crisis that's not being reported and that's affected millions of people, and that's mental health and drug addiction. And I know that several studies uh, have appeared lately that where they've surveyed people and over 50% of us are feeling depression to some extent because of the widespread lockdowns. And I was really shocked too. And I, I heard you in another interview and you said that in the New York um, tri-state area alone, there is a 40% increase in opioid deaths in just the past three months. That was shocking. So let's talk about this toll that has really impacted millions of lives. You're absolutely correct, Cheryl. I mean, what I've seen personally in my clinics day in and day out, and I haven't missed a single day with patients since this pandemic started, is that it's not the virus necessarily that's hurt, has hurt people's mental health, but it's the fear about the pandemic and particularly the lockdowns. In fact, the latest studies have shown us the lockdowns have been far more dangerous than the virus itself. And in this past June, nearly half of adults in this country reported struggling with mental health because of the lockdowns. And the CDC released a study that 25% of college-age adults reported seriously thinking about suicide. And as you mentioned, the number of fatal overdoses and drug relapses have skyrocketed. Now, the lockdowns have caused death. And when I say that, I'm looking at the stats. We know there's something called missed medical care that a lot of people aren't aware of. And that is that because of the lockdowns, half of people did not go for their typical cancer screenings. And these cancers don't just go away. They, they will now show up later at more advanced stages and people are missing their chemotherapy appointments. And, and so the, the lockdowns have some staggering consequences. 
Yeah, that's that's all really frightening, um, frightening numbers. And I know that uh, to some degree, I think we've all experienced some level of, you know, of depression and and probably even some level of addictive behavior, whether it's overeating. I know almost everyone is saying, yeah, I'm drinking more than I had, you know, whether it's an addiction or not, but that impact has certainly has certainly been here. So um, I just want to back up a little bit because I, I think it's so interesting how as a neurologist, you actually became interested in addiction and then specializing in this area. So tell us how that happened. Sure. So I graduated from neurology residency from Northwell Hospital in New York, and I went to private practice at around, it was around 2013 at the height of the opiate epidemic. And patients were flooding into the office for help with what, what they were calling pain management problems. When it was apparent that really what they were suffering from was an addiction to these opiate painkillers. And it had clearly, what I was seeing, it was being set into motion largely by doctors who had irresponsibly overprescribed these medications to many who never really needed them in the first place. And at the time, you know, the painkillers were really meant for cancer-related pain, people in hospice care. But what we were seeing was that doctors were prescribing them for everyday aches and pains. And I know, you know, we don't have time on, on this particular episode to get into why that was happening, but suffice it to say it was. And those same doctors who were creating addiction in their patients were never trained to even handle what they were setting into motion. So, so they would get, um, uh, the doctors would often pass these patients along, not knowing what to do once this happened. And eventually most of the physicians were frightened by the descent of their patient into addiction and would, and would sort of discharge them with instructions like, well, you need to go to rehab. And many of these people to no fault of their own went into withdrawal and, and it led them to think to buying other, other opiate things on the streets such as hope, uh, heroin or um, just any other opiates to relieve their symptoms. Now I was witnessing this unfolding of the pandemic, not just in my patients, but it began to affect close friends and family members to me. And so sh just shortly after, you know, coming out of neurology residency, I decided I was not going to be part of that destructive way of practicing. And it became my, my life mission then to go back, get additional training to learn the most, you know, advanced science there was about addiction and trying to help treat and sort of unenslave un people from the, this drug addiction. That's been my primary focus since. Well, that's great to hear, and and you are such a passionate doctor on on this topic, and and we need more people like you, honestly. So, I know that you treat all kinds of addictions, from opioids to alcohol, and what I really like is that you say addiction is not a moral failure because just people are embarrassed, people place blame. There, you know, there's just there's just so much. Um, surrounding all those issues sometimes for people to even seek help but you say it has to do with brain science and changes in the brain so without getting too too technical so we could understand this um tell us what happens with the brain and addiction i know you say there is an addictive brain sure and i promise not to get too technical but as long as we have a couple of minutes i can yes I, you and the audience really fully understand what's going on here so addiction is as far as I'm concerned, the most widely misunderstood medical condition in all of healthcare, because there's a tremendous stigma with addiction. 
And there are many who still believe it's an issue of willpower or it's a morality issue, but the latest science clearly shows us that it is most definitely neither of those things. Addiction is essentially a tale of two brain centers. It's our rational or thinking brain, which we call our cortex, and something called our limbic system, which is very deep in our brain called the brainstem. And we don't have any rational control over this limbic area of our brain. So let's just discuss this limbic system very quickly first. Very deep inside the brain, our limbic system is, is the command center that controls our basic survival drives, such as eating, drinking, mating. It functions completely outside of our conscious control. Even though we have no control over this region of our brain, our limbic system is the most powerful driver of our behavior. Um, but it, it doesn't just control our survival drives. It also runs our entire nervous system, our trillions of cells every second of every day. In other words, it coordinates the function of, of all of our organs and nature didn't give our thinking brain the wiring to control this system because we don't know how to run the cells and organs of our body. But the limbic system has millions of wires that connect to this rational part of our brain to make sure that we carry out our survival drives. For example, you don't have to remember to feel hungry. That limbic system lights up and sends those hunger signals to your thinking brain, that which tells you, essentially commands you to eat. And have you ever tried to use your rational brain to forget about your hunger? It's basically impossible because the, there's not wiring for the rational brain to shut off the limbic area only the other way around. Now, understanding this dynamic between these two parts of the brain, the rational versus the limbic area, is the key to understanding addiction because when the brain is exposed to drugs like opiates or alcohol, especially if you're susceptible to it on a repeated basis, it hijacks or hacks into our limbic area that we don't control. And once this area gets hijacked by the drug, this critical center of our brain now believes that finding this drug is more important than other survival drives like food and water. And those substances now become the priority of that person's life and drives and motivations. It causes intense ongoing cravings to find that drug and use it despite the rational brain seeing the recurring harm in someone's life. And this becomes the battle. And we know this, Cheryl, to be, to be this is not theory anymore. This is fact. We see it in, in advanced imaging studies like functional MRIs. We can see the changes that happen in the limbic system. But there's hope because born of that understanding are new treatments. Well, that is really fascinating because I, you know, I've never heard of the limbic system before and you've described it so well. And it sounds like understanding this is a really important, I guess, discovery, so to speak, in it terms is. of treatments. So I know you, you're on top of all the, all the very latest treatments. And I think if there's one really important message to get out here today to everybody listening, is and and you say that there is hope there are new treatments and that nobody is beyond reach so can you talk about some of the new treatments in terms of opioid addiction alcohol addiction i'd love to hear hear these updates and advancements that you're seeing for sure um and again i, I know we don't have unlimited time but i'd like to mention at least one of them right now particularly because um so many people aren't aware of it and it's such a powerful tool that we have. Um, it, it's incredibly successful and the public hasn't had a chance to really hear about it. It's a medicine that's called Vivitrol. And this one medicine can help treat both alcohol and opiate addiction. 
Now, whichever medicine you use, because we have other medicines to help people with addiction, help with these brain changes that have occurred, they, they need to go along with counseling. And it, it, we'll get into that in a minute, but this is a medicine which is a once monthly injection. It's for a few months and you're done. It's not addicting, it's not habit forming. And what it does is it targets that specific area we just talked about in the brain, that limbic area that was hijacked by the drugs and it helps it heal. It takes down any cravings and helps um, the area of the brain heal much more quickly than if you were to just to stop using drugs on your own. And incredibly, even if someone were on this medicine were to use a drug, for example, like take an opiate drug, like an oxycodone or a heroin, um, even, even though the cravings wouldn't be there, should the person take it anyway? Um, what essentially happens is this medicine is acting like a shield around that limbic area. And so that blood would be, would be blocked. The drug would be blocked from entering that area of the brain and that, that person wouldn't feel high they don't feel, they wouldn't get sick. It would, the drug would sort of metabolize and just excrete out, out of their body. And it wouldn't allow them, it wouldn't set off that area for them to get re-addicted. So, and, it, and, and furthermore, we know that 150 people right now a day are overdosing from opiates, okay? And this would block that person from not only feeling high from the medication causing addiction, but would block them from potentially having an overdose. Um, and this medicine now, you know, um, it's been out a couple of years, but A, because there aren't many addiction medicine specialists and B, because it was very expensive. It, a lot of people didn't know about it, but now it's a law that it, most, almost all insurance companies need to cover this medication in, in full. And in this last year alone, I mean, I've probably, I've successfully treated hundreds, maybe thousands of people uh, using this medicine. And this medicine is just one of the latest medicines we have. And it, to treat opiate and alcohol addiction. So this is an example of things that people, you know, just the public needs to be aware of. Um, the opiate crisis was declared national emergency by President Trump. As I said, the overdoses are staggering every day in this country. 6,000, um, excuse me, 4,000 uh, people are trying opiates for non-medical purposes every single day. We have a staggering epidemic and we have we understand much better how to help people, and we have new tools available. So, Dr. Tsereski, tell us again the name of this, this drug, and I think it's great that insurance is now paying for it. And is this typically used when people are trying to detox? Is that how it would be? Um, so that's a great described. question. That's a great question, Cheryl. Um, and so the name of the medicine is Vivitrol, okay? Okay. And as I said, it's not addictive, it's not habit forming, and it's not a, uh, a lifelong course of treatment. You just, so most people are on it for a few months to a year, it depends on the, on the individual and what they're, what they're doing with other aspects of their life. Um, but usually what happens is during the, during the detox process, you know, this medicine is, is not specifically for detox. We use detox medicines to help people with withdrawal. That's a little bit different because their brain has been hijacked to, to, to believe that these drugs are important for their survival. So the brain goes through, releases a lot of stress neurotransmitters, which causes these terrible withdrawal symptoms. Um, and so we have medicines to help calm that down so people don't have to feel with the withdrawal that many people aren't aware even exist, but we do have those medicines. The Vivitrol really, is the, we've had those medicines for quite a while. It's the Vivitrol that's the next leap forward in helping to 
help restore that limbic area of the brain and help secure sobriety for that person after detox because detox actually is usually the easy part you know but detoxes tend to be revolving doors for the same people because detox doesn't fix the addiction it may help the withdrawal symptoms but but that part of the brain is still very much um, hijacked by those drugs, even after the, the withdrawal is over, creating intense cravings for that person that can be lifelong. So we use Vivitrol at that point, along with the detox medicines to help secure their sobriety, help their brain get much better and much quicker. Well, that's really encouraging. And that there's a, a whole lot of hope there in what you've just said. And what are some of the other treatments? And then also, how do you find out if someone's limbic system is out of balance. Does this require an MRI or is it just because you know the person is addicted that that would have happened? Well, that question makes sense. No, it's a, it, you're asking such great questions. I'm, I'm so glad we're getting to get this information out to the audience. Um, what we know now is that from these, we don't need to use, we don't need to use MRIs or other advanced um, neurological studies to know if a limbic system has been hijacked because anything that creates addiction, anything, right? Because there's different forms of addiction, even, even some behavioral addictions like gambling addiction, which is an awful addiction, very much in line with, with uh, drug addiction, like, like alcohol addiction or opiate addiction. Um, we know that for something to create addiction, meaning the, the person's compulsively thinking about um, that drug or behavior, and then compulsively going out and, and using that drug despite the recurring harm in their life, that loss of control is addiction. And the only way that happens is via hijacking of that circuitry that I'm simplifying and calling the limbic system. Um, we, even people with, like I said, gambling disorder, um, which I know you didn't ask me about, but it's very important that people understand that even that we know produces the same hijacked limbic area. So for example, although Vivitrol hasn't officially been FDA approved for that in my practice, I treat people for gambling disorder in part by using this medicine and it, it, helps, it helps that behavior not trigger the circuitry to get hijacked, even for gambling. So it's pretty incredible what we've come to understand about why people get so mired down tragically with addiction. You know, on the outside, People look, at, people look at it, not understanding it and saying, oh my God, this person has lost so much in their life to their addiction. Why do they keep using? It doesn't make any sense. Right. Because the drive to the addiction isn't coming from the rational frontal area of that person's brain. It's really being driven by another region of the brain, which is just incredibly overpowering. And so we need medicine to help calm that down and then counseling once that's calmed down, counseling becomes critical for that person to help. Change. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, and then what? So counseling really does come in and play a, a big role here. And Yeah. 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 Count, yeah. And, and, and um, counseling plays an important role. Counseling can't get to that limbic area of the brain. It just can't because that works on our rational thinking area. Once we're able to cool down that limbic area, which is on fire, driving the cravings for the drug, with these medicines we have, we can calm it down. Then counseling becomes critical. We know that no matter what medicine we use, if it goes along with a counseling program so that the person can help change their life, the people, places, and things that, they're, that are in their life, 
they'll have a much better success rate than if we use medicine alone, because one day that medicine won't be there. And then, and then that person will have to have used that time when they were being treated with the medicine to change their life. So when the medicine comes away, they don't just go out and repeat the same thing again and, and get their, their brain hijacked. Wow, that's really, um, that's really fascinating stuff. So I also want to ask you, would this apply to food addictions? Uh, absolutely, it does. Uh, in fact, one of the very first things, you know, and again, I, I go back to this medicine because of how it works and what we understand about the limbic area. Um, what we understand is that, you know, people have, we all have genetic susceptibilities to all kinds of things, men, everything from mental health to physical conditions, but we, we have certain vulnerabilities to addictions. It could be a slight vulnerability to a severe vulnerability, and it's not one gene. It's a combination of many genes that give us that that susceptibility. And we don't have the ability yet to, un, to map out all of those genes and understand what kind of susceptibility we each have. However, if your brain happens to be susceptible to being hijacked by food, right? And, you, and it may not be alcohol for you because alcohol may not light up the limbic area in your brain because that's just not how your particular brain works genetically. But if it can be hijacked by food, uh, the same process is happening than what's happening, say, with alcohol for someone who is susceptible to alcohol addiction. So when this medicine, Vivitrol, was first being looked at, when it was first being studied years ago, they actually were first using it for binge eating because what they realized, wow. wait a minute, why are people that were using this medicine in, why do they have so much better control over their binge eating? And it was because, again, it was protecting that limbic area, not letting food light it up to a very large degree. Um, I don't know how much time we have. Do we, do we have a couple more minutes? Sure, absolutely. Okay, because uh, this is also an important thing for your, uh, your audience to understand is that we know if you take 100 people randomly and you expose them to a particular uh, drug, say alcohol, maybe 75% of them, when alcohol will enter their brain, it will hit that limbic area, but it will only light it up 20 or 30%. And that's, and that's a pleasure center in the brain. And so that's why most people enjoy to have a drink or two, but it, they don't become obsessed with it. They can, they can have half a glass of wine and put it down and, and not think about it again, you know? Whereas some people, to no fault of their own, if they have alcohol, it lights up that area of their brain, not 30%, 50 and 60%. And that's when that hijacking happens. And the limbic area says, this must be a, an important, um, and this must be an important drive for my life um, because only things that light my brain up that way, for example, like, like food, it would be important. The brain uses those signals to understand what is salient, what am I supposed to be driven towards in life? And so if something hijacks that system, that's what sets, sets off the addiction. And, and that's why some people can be so easily addicted. Look, there's a reason why some people can have half a drink and put it down and not think about it. And another person could put in so much work to get and stay sober, you know, for, and they could be sober for years and have one drink and their whole life goes off the rails. That's not because one person has bad morals and the other person doesn't. We know that now. It's, it's how that drug is affecting their brain. And so I think that's so important for, you know, the public and, and your audience listening right now to understand uh, if, if they have a loved one or somebody close to them who's dealing with addiction. 
So how do you, if people realize they have a problem and they start to go see someone and want to get into some kind of recovery program, do they have to ask for something like Vivitrol? Is it is it widely now being used and distributed? How do people even know about this now and, and get this kind of treatment that sounds so revolutionary yeah. and important? Uh, well, there's a couple. Well, first of all, it depends on what area of the country you live in and what treatment center you go to. Um, for example, I can tell you in New York, where, where I'm based, um, most rehabs now, if you go to an inpatient rehab, before you leave, they will offer you this treatment of Vivitrol before you leave. Um, and that's most inpatient facilities because now no matter what insurance you have, even if it's Medicaid insurance, uh, they will cover Vivitrol in full. And so they're offering it to, to people now. So more and more people will be knowing, hearing about this. But the important part is that then you're connected to uh, an outpatient program or a physician that also you, has experience with this treatment. So it can continue uh, and, and you can go on with this. If, you, if, they, if, you, if the center you're at does not offer this treatment, because unfortunately, look, this is a area of medicine which is, is in evolution. Uh, and so um, there are still 90% of facilities across this country that just are not there yet. They don't have, the, their doctors don't, aren't up on the latest research. Uh, I know because I travel to different centers, I help teach this information and we're trying, we're working as a field to get, to get more doctors to become experienced with this. But if you or a loved one are struggling and, and uh, with, with an addiction, uh, you know, please spread this information to everyone that you know, because not everyone is gonna be told or have, or have access uh, to, to the medication. Um, but so you have to be a, a self-advocate. You know, we're kind of, the information, just so you know, Shell, we're talking about here, is really cutting edge stuff. And, and a lot of people may have never heard of this. And even after going to rehab, may not even hear about it. So yeah, that's so, great. That's yeah. really important to know. So before we leave, there's just a couple of other things like I, I would like to go over with you. One is for people in New York, they should know, I want them to know about your personal practice, which is in Great Neck, New York, call Recovery Revolution, and then Bridge Back to Life. So could you tell us a little bit about each of those? And at the end, we'll give people the information on, on uh, where to reach out. Well, well, sure. So at both centers, my, my private practice and, and at Bridge Back to Life, you know, we provide wraparound care for people who are dealing with uh, mental health or addiction issues. And we use a combination of um, some uh, the clinical diagnoses that we talked about. We have some genetic testing we're doing now to understand which medicines might be better uh, suited for certain people. Uh, and we combine these, these new cutting edge medicines along with counseling that's, that's tailored to each, to each person. The best advice I can give to your audience is if you're struggling, look, Joe, right now, um, everyone, this epidemic is so widespread that everyone is just one degree of separation from it. Either you right. are dealing with it or someone very close to you is. And my best advice is to get, get that person to a professional, to get expert help as soon as possible. It's never been easier to access mental health or addiction because also telehealth. And I don't know if you want to talk about that, but we can. Yes, I think that's so important these days. And people should understand that because people, I think a lot of people have been very reluctant during the pandemic to actually reach out for help because 
you know, they don't want to go into a place. So yeah, talk about that a little bit, because I think that's, that's pretty key here. Yeah, so telehealth, or what's also called telemedicine, you know, has been able to connect even people in the most remote or rural regions of the country who would never have access to specialists, uh, physicians, you know, getting them to the right doctors immediately, because this pandemic has essentially, you know, the good thing that's come out of this is it has essentially forced insur insurance companies to knock down the barriers to this, to cover these services the same as it would for in-person doctor's visits. So even with a simple cell phone now, there are many apps that are available. Anyone can reach the help that they need. Actually, earlier this year, I started bringing, I know you're in New York, so I started bringing addiction and mental health services to people in rural New York uh, in Sullivan County via telehealth. So each week I'll I dedicate time towards seeing people with addiction or mental health using telehealth in Sullivan County because this area has high levels of poverty and, and drug addiction has very few doctors who specialize in these areas. But unfortunately, Cheryl, still not enough people are aware that telehealth services exist or know how to access them. There are many apps and sites, but to be specific, uh, I can recommend ePsychiatry. That's e psychiatry.com. I'm recommending this. I have no personal connection to it. I recommend it because A, it's easy to remember for your audience. And because e-psychiatry has a very large network of doctors or cl and clinicians that are already on board with them. So they have a very efficient system in connecting uh, you with a, with a clinician should you need one. And I can tell you with certainty that telehealth is just going to get expand further and further in all fields of medicine as time goes on. And that's so wonderful. And you touched on such an important um, piece of it too. It's that telehealth is such a great way to reach people in rural areas and underserved communities uh, to make sure that they get the much needed services that they need. So that is really terrific. And let's hope that continues to, to grow. And it took a pandemic to push it, but that's been terrific, I think, one of the good outcomes. So honestly, I can't thank you enough, Dr. Sarowski. You have just been a, a fountain of knowledge, information, and hope for so many people. And I, it's just wonderful what you're doing, and you're so passionate about this. And um, people can learn more at drsarowski.com and at bridgebacktolife.com, and they should definitely follow you on Instagram. And on Facebook, too, because you have wonderful information that you're giving out there all the time. So thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.